Hello, and welcome to the February 2016 edition of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legale, LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. All right, first up this month, our lead story is about a lesbian widow fighting for a surviving spouse pension benefit. The date of her partner's death, however, at first blush, appeared to doom any claim she might have to the pension. Can you tell us why that turned out not to be true, Art? Okay, this is uh, a very interesting case where the chronology is everything, but not everything. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, this involves a, a lesbian couple who were together for 27 years. Uh, Stacy Shewitt and uh, Leslie Tab- Tabuata Hall. I'll just <laughs> refer to them as Stacy and Leslie. Yeah. So uh, Stacy and Leslie had been together for a long time. Leslie was employed by Federal Express. She had a vested pension under their pension plan, which is uh, regulated by the Federal Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And ERISA, as the act is, is referred to by its acronym, requires that a plan provide that if a, uh, a vested pension beneficiary dies before they retire and they're married at the time they die, their surviving spouse is entitled to a survivor's annuity for the rest of her life. Uh, well, in this case, uh, the problem is they got married on June 19th, 2013, in, in California. California at a time when same-sex marriage was not available because of Proposition 8, which was struck down by the Supreme Court a week later. And so the marriage was symbolic in a sense. They did get a a government official to perform a wedding ceremony for them because, unfortunately, Leslie was terminal with cancer and was expected to die very shortly. And, in fact, she did die the next day, also before uh, the the Supreme Court uh, struck down Prop 8 in effect, struck down Prop 8 by finding that it had not been properly appealed because the uh, the petitioners in the case didn't have standing to appeal the district court's order. Uh, so, you know, uh, a little bit of the backstory here. Uh, when Stacy learned, and Stacy and, and Leslie learned that Leslie was terminal, uh, they contacted FedEx, the personnel department. You know, they asked about benefits. You know, what happens if this, if that, you know, what contingencies. Uh, earlier, uh, Leslie had considered retiring and starting to draw on her pension, uh, but she had been discouraged by the employee benefits people at FedEx because they said uh, if you retire, you no longer would have access to the employee health insurance policy. You'd have to go out and get your own. Uh, and they said, if you just stay on medical leave, you continue to be covered. And so they were asked, well, what happens if I die before I retire? Will my partner receive the survivor's pension? And they were told, no, well, you're not married. You know. But in any event, uh, she never retired. She died on medical leave. Uh, and uh, they had performed a ceremony. Uh, the reason they did was the doctor said, you know, you don't have much time left. It could be any day now. And they really wanted to have some kind of ceremony. So they did. So after she dies, uh, a few days later, the Supreme Court not only knocks down Prop 8, in effect, but also uh, Section 3 of DOMA, which had been incorporated by reference in the pension plan 
to provide that only different sex married couples were uh, entitled to this survivor's benefit. So that was struck down as well. So uh, I think she had very good legal advice here. Uh, Stacy went into a California court and asked for an order declaring that she and Leslie had been validly married on June 19th. And so when uh, Stacy, when uh, Leslie died on June 20th, that Stacy should be considered the surviving spouse for purposes of her employee benefits entitlements. And she managed to persuade the California court to issue a declaration that, in fact, their marriage was valid uh, on the theory that because Judge Walker's decision striking down Prop 8 way back in 2010 was not properly appealed, therefore it should be construed at least retroactive back to that date that same-sex couples had a right to marry in California. And furthermore, that the Windsor case itself uh, by declaring Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, obviously it was unconstitutional as of the time it was passed back in 1996. So that means that the federal definition of marriage that was incorporated by reference into the Employee Benefit Plan was also invalid. So interesting consequences flowing from that. So now, after getting that declaration from the court, Stacy files for the survivor's benefit. And FedEx resists it. They say, look... In terms of administering an employee benefit plan, we are limited by the terms of the plan itself. And under a construction of the terms of the written plan itself, you're not entitled to the benefit. Uh, and uh, so she had to sue. And the judge actually agreed with FedEx that she couldn't sue under the plan itself for enforcement of the benefit provision because they said the benefit provision of the plan doesn't provide for this. As of the time that uh, Leslie died, Stacy was not a legally recognized spouse, even if a California court has declared that retroactively. Uh, and furthermore, uh, the court also rejected the argument that it was a breach of fiduciary duty by the administrators of the plan to not provide this benefit. But there was another route, and that is uh, a, uh, a beneficiary under an employee benefit plan regulated by ERISA can sue the plan for failing to comply with the requirements of ERISA. And ERISA itself, the statute provides that a plan must provide the surviving uh, spouse benefit. And the Labor Department had very helpfully issued a guidance saying that as a result of the Windsor decision, ERISA's incorporation of DOMA's definition of a marriage was not valid. And so all marriages, whether different sex or same sex, uh, had to be recognized under an ERISA plan. All right, so uh, the judge here, uh, Phyllis J. Hamilton of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California in San Francisco. I know people are going to say, yeah, San Francisco. Okay, but uh, Judge Hamilton says, okay, you know, we'll put this all together, and we will say that Windsor itself has retroactive effect, clearly, and that a California court has declared that this marriage was valid as of June 19th, so that when Leslie died, Stacy was a surviving spouse under state law. And the normal way you decide whether someone is married uh, for purposes of an employee benefit plan is you look to state law. We will defer to the California court decision. We will apply Windsor retroactively uh, and say that as of the date when uh, Leslie passed away, uh, Stacy was entitled by virtue of an ERISA interpretation to have this benefit regardless what the employee benefit plan actually stated. 
uh, it's a complicated sort of structure of legal argument. And, this would make and a great law school final exam question. It would question. make a great exam question, <laughs> but for an employee benefits course, yes. not for a sexuality in the law course. <laughs> right. uh, just, just to add, uh, and the court pointed out, that Windsor itself involved the retroactive application right. because uh, the, among the relief that uh, Edie Windsor got was uh, a tax refund dating back to when she paid the tax several years before the litigation mm-hmm. began uh, with interest. So the Supreme Court, in fact, in, in enforcing the remedy ordered by the district court in the Windsor case was applying uh, its ruling retroactively. And there's some other Supreme Court precedent in other areas of the law about when a Supreme Court announces a rule, it's retroactive. Right. And and certainly when it announced that the uh, petitioners in the Prop 8 case didn't have standing, mm-hmm. you can also apply that retroactively to say that at least as of uh, the summer of 2010, when Judge Walker ruled that, the, that Proposition 8 was unconstitutional, same-sex couples had a right to marry in California because Proposition 8 had overruled, in a sense, the California Supreme Court's decision saying that same-sex couples had a right to marry. Right. So very interesting sequence of events. Yeah. Uh, I think this may be unique, but maybe there are other couples uh, that are in this situation. Yeah. Certainly the, uh, the idea that Windsor should be applied retroactively is going to be very useful. the idea that Obergefell should be applied retroactively right. in a New York uh, case recently as well. Right. So it's an interesting uh, yeah, proposition is, for these lawyers to use. This is coming up. In fact, this very issue uh, comes up again in, in one of the other cases we're discussing, yeah. if I remember to mention the Obergefell connection. <laughs> All right. We will take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss a unanimous New York appellate division decision involving an upstate wedding venue that turned down a lesbian couple. We are back discussing Gifford versus McCarthy, a case involving the owners of a wedding venue that changed their tune when they realized a lesbian couple was trying to book their farm for a ceremony. What did the New York appellate courts say about their statutory and constitutional defenses for this discrimination art? Well, the appellate division unanimously rejected all their statutory and constitutional uh, defenses. And uh, one thing that isn't really mentioned in the in the decision and probably didn't make a difference, but it might have, is that New York is one of those states that did not adopt a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, yeah. the so-called RIFRA, uh, although that might not make a difference because uh, the case that the court cited a lot and referred to, the Elaine photography case from New Mexico, New Mexico does have a RIFRA, and New Mexico's Supreme Court said that did not privilege a wedding photographer to refuse to... Uh, uh, be hired to produce a wedding album right. for a lesbian commitment ceremony. So, but getting back to New York, uh, this is uh, Liberty Ridge Farm is uh, the actual corporate defendant in this case uh, and the appellant here. Uh, Liberty Ridge Farm is a limited liability corporation formed by the Giffords who own the farm. Uh, so they're doing business as a for-profit business. It's not a not-for-profit and it's certainly not a religious institution. And uh, according to the testimony of uh, Mrs. Gifford uh, and, and her husband, Robert, when same-sex marriage became available in New York, they just decided they didn't want to do same-sex marriages at the farm. But they didn't publicize this fact uh, as far as uh, anything goes from, from we, we can conclude from the opinion. Right. So uh, Melissa McCarthy and Jennifer McCarthy, a lesbian couple, 
uh, after uh, marriage equality was enacted in New York. They got engaged. They decided they would get married the following year, you know, give them a lot of advanced time to plan it. And at some point they did their research. They uh, discovered Liberty Ridge Farm probably through its website. They called up uh, Mrs. Gifford and uh, she was happy to start talking about, you know, booking a date and making arrangements. And then it came out in the conversation from the pronouns that it was a same-sex couple. And she said, oh, oh, there's a problem here. We don't do same-sex marriages. And she was asked, why not? And said, well, my husband and I just decided we don't want to do that at our farm. Uh, so uh, the McCarthys found another venue. They had their wedding. But they filed a discrimination charge with the New York State Division of Human Rights the New York Human Rights Law says places of public accommodation may not discriminate based on sexual orientation. So we have two statutory defenses that the Giffords made here. Uh, the first is they said, we are not a public accommodation. We're a privately owned farm that occasionally rents out our space, mainly the barn, for uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs. Maybe they do a bris now and then. I don't know. You know <laughs> life cycle events. Yes. I don't think they've done funerals out of there, but who knows. <laughs> but at any event, you know, they rent it out. And they are incorporated. And they do charge for it. And uh, they make a profit on these events. Uh, and so the uh, the administrative law judge for the State Division of Human Rights said, well, that's sort of nonsensical to say you're not a business. And you are a business. You're a, a for-profit corporation. But their other argument was, they said, we do not discriminate based on the sexual orientation of anybody. They said, in fact, they, they argued at one point in the course of the case, we would be happy for them to hold their reception at our farm, just not the ceremony. Because when it came down to it, they had religious objections to a same-sex marriage ceremony being held in their farm. Uh, and the court as did the uh, the administrative law judge and the Commission of Human uh, Division of Human Rights, the court took the position that you can't really distinguish between status and conduct in a case like this. Uh, the way the statute is phrased, it looks like status-based discrimination. You may not discriminate against someone because they are gay right. or lesbian. Uh, but they said it's well accepted now in civil rights law uh, and has been vindicated all the way up to the level of the Supreme Court that if you're talking about uh, excluding someone from doing something that is inextricably bound up in their identity as right. such, you can't really draw a line between the, the famous two. famous example is uh, discrimination against people who wear yarmulkes. It's discrimina yeah, discrimination against Jews. Right. And, in other words, there is conduct that is associated with the status. Yeah. And certainly same-sex marriages are associated with the status of gay and lesbian couples right. now, uh, <laughs> especially over the last few years, yes. now that it's become legal. Uh, so the court said, we're not going to recognize that distinction. So we've got to turn to the other, uh, the constitutional arguments. Right. And, and here the constitutional arguments based on the state and federal constitution are uh, free exercise of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of association. And uh, the court said, well, the case law that has evolved on these issues has said that people with personal religious objections uh, do not have a sort of free-floating exemption from complying with general laws, laws of general application, laws that are not specifically targeted at religious practices. Uh, that dates way back to the Supreme Court's decision uh, of uh, 
uh, Smith. the Smith case versus Employment Division in Oregon yeah. uh, involving uh, a Native American who used peyote and was discharged because he was using a controlled substance, and then he applied for unemployment benefits and was denied on the grounds it was a for-cause discharge, and he tried to make a free exercise claim. And the Supreme Court, I think it was Justice Scalia who yes. wrote the opinion, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. Because uh, the fact that you, as a religious practice, want to smoke peyote doesn't exempt you from your employer's policy yeah. that you can't be a drug user. And, in fact, this will come up again in the of note case that we're talking about yes. today. So and This is really an uncontroversial principle until the Hobby Lobby decision. Right. That because, un- yeah, under Hobby Lobby, this uh, Liberty Ridge farm can practice religion. Yeah under Hobby Lobby. But the point is, Hobby Lobby was not a constitutional decision, really. Right. Hobby Lobby was an interpretation of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right. And Which we, wouldn't apply to right, this case. We don't have a New York Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yeah. So uh, it's, it seems pretty clear this case sends a strong signal that uh, people who provide goods and services and venues for weddings in New York cannot discriminate against same-sex couples in doing that if they're going to provide that service. If they're just going to not do weddings anymore, that's a different story. Then they're not discriminating. Uh, and uh, it will be interesting to see whether this goes anywhere. This is the appellate division, which is the intermediate appellate court. The Giffords and their business are represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, formerly known as the Alliance Defense Fund. It's a litigation group that basically litigates in support of freedom of religion, free exercise of religion. Well, an extreme regardless. view of freedom of religion. Well, the idea that freedom of religion always must trump <laughs> any other concern because the First Amendment, you know. Uh, and then, of course, they've hooked on to RIFRAs as well, but the First Amendment is what, what they're arguing about when government is involved. Uh, so chances are they will try to get this up to the appellate division. I don't think they have a right to go up. It's yeah. the unanimous decision. Uh, but it's a constitutional claim. Uh, maybe the uh, Court of Appeals will be interested in it. Yeah. So this may go further. They could also, if 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 they uh, try to get to the Court of Appeals and are turned down, they could file a cert petition with the Supreme Court. Right. But I would say this is dis- distinguishable from the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby precedent. This would be governed by the earlier case. I can't after they didn't take Elaine photography. I can't yeah. imagine they want to take this case. But right, and because Elaine photography even presented a slightly stronger argument because I think in Elaine Photography, the service that was contracted for was for the photographer to actually produce a wedding album. And the court points out here that there was no requirement that Giffords participate in this ceremony at all, even though uh, the the service they normally supplied was Mrs. Gifford was sort of the major domo who ran everything and, you know, planned for the flowers and the decorations and arranged for the caterer and everything. And uh, so she felt that she was very involved and the court basically said, well, she doesn't have to be. She can just rent them the venue and leave it to them to do all the it's arrangements. It's also interesting, and I should give a shout-out here to the attorney who argued the case, who's a legal member, Michael Swirsky. But in talking to Michael, he said, we don't actually even know what religion these people are. It's not yeah. in the, any of the you know um, testimony or evidence yeah. in the case. And, of course, c- courts don't normally inquire into whether religious beliefs are, you know, uh, valid for a certain religion or not. It's not one of the things the courts usually delve into, but it is sort of interesting that we don't actually yeah. even know what... The courts sort of, they, they sort of assume that if someone's going to go to all this trouble yes. and be, be sued and everything, that they probably do have a sincere religious belief. Yeah. And we don't need to inquire into whether they're part of an organized religion for which it's part of their theology or right. something. So, you know, you could be the church of one member. Yeah. 
or I guess the church of two members in the case of the Yitzhak. And then you have to count the chickens and the the hens and (laughs) the cows on the farm. We will take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a Texas appeals court ruling denying standing for a transgender man to bring a paternity action. We are back discussing the case of Inri Sandoval. Can you tell our listeners, Art, why a Texas appeals court panel... Denied standing to a transgender man seeking custody and visitation of children adopted by his longtime former partner? Yeah. This was a case involving, uh, well, you could say it, at some point it was two women, but not really, because uh, the, uh, the plaintiff in this case, uh, who was uh, seeking to have continued custody and visitation rights with respect to the children that he was helping to raise, was identified female at birth, named Diana, uh, now goes by the name of Dino. And in fact, according to the court, Dino Villarreal has felt uh, a masculine identity, a male identity, throughout his adult life. Uh, And this isn't recent. I mean, he has been together with Sandra Sandoval for many, many years. Uh, They wanted to have kids. She adopted. I mean... If her her partner, there are two ways you can go. You can do donor insemination or you can do adoption. Uh, She decided to adopt and adopted two little kids, and they're raising the kids together. But after a few years, the relationship between the adults broke up. And Sandoval allowed Dino Villarreal to continue contact for uh, several years. And then at some point, she cut it off. And Villarreal files a petition uh, to adjudicate paternity uh, in order to be able to, uh, to seek uh, continued custody and visitation rights. And the court rejected him on this first round on the ground that he was legally female. That is, up to that time, Villarreal had not taken advantage of a statute in Texas under which a transgender person who has uh, gone through the process of transition, can get a legal declaration that they are their preferred gender, or the gender consistent with their personal identity. And uh, he had not done that. So the court said technically he's a woman, and technically under our statutes for contesting custody, there is only one provision under which he might have brought an action, and that is if he'd done it right after the breakup. Because someone who has been basically a de facto parent, who's been acting as a parent and has had actual custody uh, of a child and has been caring for that child, can bring an action uh, to uh, assert parental rights, but there's a time limit. You can't sit on your rights. Uh, and he had not brought an action because presumably he saw no need to do so. His, uh, his former partner was being cooperative. He was continuing to see the kids. Uh, but well after that time when he could have brought that action, it expired. Now, all of a sudden, he needs to bring an action because he's being excluded. Uh, so, And that, that ruling was upheld by the Texas Court of Appeals. But in the meantime, he realized he better do this, so he went into court, different proceeding in a Texas state court, and he got his declaration that he's a man. In fact, the court specifically said, it is ordered that petitioner's identity is changed from female to male. Right, so now he's got the credentials, he's got the piece of paper, he goes back to court, files a new petition to adjudicate parentage, 
And this time, the trial judge is receptive. The trial judge says, well, you're a man. Okay. Uh, under our statutes, a man who is asserting that he is the father of the children can bring a petition. And furthermore, the trial judge awarded him temporary visitation rights. Well, his former partner, Sandra, the adoptive mother of these children, uh, filed a plea to the jurisdiction, uh, which was rejected by the trial judge. Uh, and she brought a writ of mandamus proceeding to the Court of Appeals. Now, normally, uh, the way to deal with this would be to go through the litigation, get a final judgment, and or appeal it in the ordinary course. But in unusual cases, the Court of Appeal may consider a, a petition for a writ of mandamus. And in this case, the three-judge panel of the Texas Court of Appeals decided it was an appropriate case. And, in fact, they issued the writ, and they reversed the trial court. They said the trial court has to dismiss this case because maybe a court has declared that Dino Villarreal is a man. But for purposes of the family code, we don't accept that. And the rationale was two parts. Uh, one part is that the provision under which he was going uh, to establish paternity, according to the court, is for purposes of establishing that the petitioner is the biological father of the kids. You know, this is for a case in which there's a dispute about parentage and a man who claims to be the biological father files suit. And they said, obviously, uh, Dino is a transgender man. He couldn't be the biological father uh, for the obvious reason that he never generated any sperm that led to the procreation of these kids. But they said, furthermore, these kids were adopted. Right. You know, maybe, maybe there's some way to, to say that this would be rational if Sandra actually gave birth to these kids but probably not since Dino is a transgender man. But they said since she is the adoptive parent, even if Dino had been male at birth, we wouldn't allow him to bring this case because these kids were obviously procreated by somebody else, by their original birth parents. Uh, and so they said it just it strikes as it just the statute doesn't, doesn't cover the situation, that he, he missed the boat, he should have filed his petition shortly after the breakup. Well, uh, they actually reached this decision last August, but he immediately petitioned for reconsideration, for on-bank reconsideration by an expanded panel because the Texas Court of Appeals is much larger. Uh, and that petition was pending until recently when they ruled on January 27th. They substituted a new opinion for the opinion that they had tentatively released uh, last August. And three members of the expanded panel wrote separate opinions who hadn't been on the original three-judge panel. One of them uh, was concurring, uh, explaining further, and this is, this is where we get what I think is you know, the language that is somewhat objectionable. The Texas Family Code does not, however, define the term male. This is uh, Justice Alvarez writing. And when the legislature does not define a word, the court will apply its, quote, ordinary meaning for which it usually looks to a dictionary definition reverting to the early decision by the Court of Appeals that had affirmed dismissal of Dino's first petition, quote, we cited Webster's Dictionary, which defines male as, quote, an individual that produces, so they're illiterate at Webster's, it should be who produces, an individual that produces small, usually motile gametes, which fertilize the eggs of a female. So they picked a definition from Webster's 
that makes uh, gender turn entirely on procreative ability. Mm. That if you are capable of producing sperm that are capable of actually fertilizing an egg, you are a man yeah. for purposes of Webster's. Well, I'm sure that's one of numerous definitions yes. of a man in Webster's. Of course, this definition leaves a lot of people out. That yeah, I mean, people man. who are sterile, you know, due to accidents or yes. illness or just, or, you know, a genetic defect or something, who are totally male in their life, in their gender identity, in their anatomy, they just can't shoot, <laughs> you know. So as far as this, this court is concerned, at least this judge concurring, they can never be a man for purposes of the family code. Uh, and uh, so uh, Justice Alvarez says this definition has not changed and is controlling in this mandamus action. Therefore, regardless of his possession of a court order changing his identity, Villarreal still does not meet the statutory definition of man under the Texas Family Code. Well, there were two dissenting opinions. Uh, one dissenting opinion was totally focused on procedure. Uh, felt that it was actually improper for the court to uh, entertain the petition for writ of mandamus, that uh, Sandra Sandoval should have litigated the case and appealed in the normal course, and uh, this judge distinguished the cases on which the three-judge panel had relied. Uh, but the last of the opinions by Justice Rebecca Martinez was a dissent on the merits. Uh, so she pointed out that uh, the Texas legislature has adopted an understanding of gender that is broader than one's anatomy, she said, by granting legal recognition as a man to a person born anatomically female. A court of law ordered legal recognition for Dino's identity as a man, regardless of his anatomical sex, without exclusion to its applicability. The uh, three-judge panel, uh, which uh, initially decided the case, looked at that Texas statute and said, well, that's for the purpose of marriage. That's in response to some litigation that had gone on where the court said that even though someone had gotten a new birth certificate and had transitioned, blah, 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 for purposes of our marriage law, they would be considered only the gender of their birth. Uh, and therefore, a marriage that had taken place between a uh, man and a transgender woman was not valid. So when the man died, the woman couldn't bring a wrongful death action. Uh, that was uh, a case that received a lot of adverse comment, and it evidently ultimately stimulated the Texas legislature to pass the statute where you can get a new declaration of, of gender. And so the court said, you know, given the context, we think that statute was about marriage. It wasn't about anything else. So you're a man or a woman for purposes of the right to marry, and of course, after Obergefell, that's irrelevant because now marriage is nationwide without respect to gender. Uh, so they basically reduce that statute to a nullity as far as they're concerned because it's not necessary to get a declaration in order to get married anymore. Uh, it's little commented point that the Obergefell decision, without even talking about the issue, removed any barrier to transgender people getting married to the spouse who wants to marry them. Yeah. Uh, so that's an important side effect. So right. at any rate, uh, this judge, Judge Martinez, says, uh, a majority of this court determines this case by addressing and viewing gender as inextricable from anatomy, by disregarding Dino's legally recognized gender identity as male, by forcing a narrow definition of being a quote-unquote man without specific and evident direction from the legislature. And here, then, she's recurring to the Obergefell decision when she says, Dino asked for equal dignity 
in the eyes of the law. That's the phrase that Justice Kennedy used in Obergefell, equal dignity. Uh, and both the Constitution and the trial court granted him that right. There's no reasonable explanation to deny his identity under every provision of the law, and in particular the family code. The statute does not impose biological sex as the fixed marker of gender identity, nor should it be interpreted to use it as a mechanism for discrimination. That Dino lacks standing stems solely from the fact that he is transgender. And uh, clearly, uh, and she, she specifically mentions Obergefell, she says, you know, Windsor and Obergefell really focused on the harms to children yeah. of not recognizing the legal status of their parents who were raising them. So clearly, the, one of the evils at which that decision was aimed of depriving same-sex couples who are raising children of legal recognition is central to this case. Here are some children who are going to be cut off from the person they knew as their father uh, from the time they were adopted. She says the Supreme Court saw no reasonable explanation for that. This should suggest to us that the court's analysis, the Supreme Court's analysis, would extend to cases not simply involving marriage, but also to eligibility for adoption and custody. For our Ombank court to read the statute to now encompass marriage and not standing to bring suit to adjudicate parentage is thus problematic. Uh, so uh, Judge Martinez would have argued, did argue very strongly that Dino should be allowed to have standing here and ultimately that the interest, the decision should be made in the best interest of the children because isn't that what custody and visitation cases should be about? Right. You know, artificial legal distinctions and definitions should not stand in the way of a court determining whether it's in the best interest of these children to retain contact with the man who had been raising them, even though he's a transgender man. Right. That should make no difference. I think, I mean, the case seems to raise sort of the, a, a phenomenon you read a lot about today, which is a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but a significant number of butch lesbian women are now transitioning rather than being butch lesbian women. And uh, this raises some interesting yeah. issues in the law as well as it does right. in some... Especially if they were raising children with yes, a partner right. before, or a married partner. Yes. And, and interesting whether uh, they get married and then one partner transitions. Yeah. Uh, now, because marriage is now genderless, that doesn't mean that it should be automatically a divorce. Yeah. And it would depend on whether the parties mutually wish to continue the marriage. Yeah. And all of a sudden, someone who was a mother is now a father. Yeah. And shouldn't they have all the rights of a father, yeah. even if they had no biological connection with the children? Yeah. And, and then the additional wrinkle, now that we have same-sex marriage everywhere, let's say it's a lesbian couple, and they decide to have kids, and they use donor insemination. Mm. And uh, the presumption should, be, should apply that the spouse of the woman who gives birth uh, provided all the requirements of the donor insemination statute, if the state has one, have been carried out, should be considered the father or the mother, I guess, because we're talking pre-transition. So it's considered the mother and is listed as such on the birth certificate, and then she transitions to he. And let's say they're in Texas, they go into court, and they get a declaration that uh, she, he is now a man, legally. They're still married. Shouldn't he have the same rights uh, to visitation and custody if they subsequently get a divorce? You know, it's, yeah. There are so many issues that are out there to yeah. be decided. You know, if anyone who thought that the Obergefell decision sort of ends it, you know, the court said that same-sex marriages shall be treated the same as different-sex marriages. But that's kind of simplistic 
when you then get into all these wrinkles mm-hmm. of different combinations of what could happen. And again, this was an intermediate appellate court right. in a so state. Right, could go to the Texas Supreme Court. Although that is court. not a bastion of sympathy for these no, kinds of the, situations. No, uh, the Texas Supreme Court is packed with Republican judges. It's all elected. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, I, I think it will be very interesting if this goes to the Texas Supreme Court to see what happens. All right. We will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss a case raising the question of whether disability discrimination laws can shield HIV-positive individuals from being fired for using medical marijuana as recommended by a doctor. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. An HIV-positive New Mexico man was discharged from his job for using medical marijuana recommended by his doctor. Did he have any luck in court arguing that this was disability discrimination art? Nope. (laughs) Which is why it's Of Note. Uh, Well, but the weird thing, the really weird thing about this case. All right. So uh, Mr. Garcia is uh, HIV positive, has has AIDS, and uh, has these terrible side effects. And his doctor says, you know, you can apply, because New Mexico has a compassionate use statute and a program, you can uh, apply to the government to get marijuana, and I think that would really help with your symptoms. You know? So yeah. his doctor recommended it. He applied. He qualified. He is being dispensed medical marijuana, which he's using, and it has helped with his symptoms to the point where he felt well enough to apply for a job. Mm-hmm. And he was well qualified for a management position. He applied a tractor supply company, a company that does business in many states, mm-hmm. and uh, for a management position. And they were impressed with his credentials. They offered him a job. He was open about the fact that he is HIV positive, that he is using medical marijuana. The people in the human resources department who are doing the hiring weren't phased by that, so they hired him. And so he reports for work, and he's told all new hires are required to submit to drug testing. So he's sent off for a drug test, and of course he tests positive for marijuana use. Uh, And so he then is told that he's being discharged for violating the company's zero-tolerance policy for drug use. He said, just a minute. He said, I have a disability. You know, HIV is a disability. It's it's well-established under New Mexico's anti-discrimination law under the Americans with Disabilities Act, he says, and using medical marijuana, the employer should be required to allow me to do it as an exception to their rule as an accommodation to my disability. And uh, the company wouldn't hear of it, and he filed uh, a claim with the New Mexico Human Rights Division. They uh, decided that there was no probable cause. They didn't sympathize with him. He was given permission to sue. He filed suit in the New Mexico District Court in Santa Fe, and uh, the employer removed it to federal court, saying this implicates, you know, the federal controlled substances laws and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's unclear from the opinion whether it was removed as a diversity case or a federal question case, uh, but uh, Tractor Supply is a nationwide company, probably not incorporated in New Mexico, so yeah. it could be there as a diversity case. Yeah. But at any rate, the judge said... Look, the Compassionate Use Statute passed by New Mexico basically says New Mexico will uh, dispense medical marijuana to people whose doctors prescribe it if they meet the qualifications of the program, and they will not be prosecuted by the state of New Mexico for using a controlled substance, even though we, we do prosecute recreational marijuana users. We will not prosecute you. That's basically state law. 
And uh, he had sought to argue, and the U.S. Justice Department has also said that they will stay their hand and not go after people who are using medical marijuana pursuant to a state program. Uh, So he said, this makes it clear that what I'm doing is lawful, and therefore I don't see why they should be able to discharge me because I have this disability. And the court said, well, they're not discharging you because you have a disability. They're discharging you because you're using a controlled substance. And the compassionate use statute says the state can't prosecute you, but it has nothing to do with your relationship with your employer. And the question is, can an employer decide as a matter of their policy that we will have a drug-free workplace and we will not employ people who use controlled substances, regardless of whether they have a prescription? Can an employer do that? without running afoul of the state law against disability discrimination? And the court said yes. They said you don't have to use medical marijuana. That was a choice that you made, and it was a choice that disqualifies you from working for Tractor Supply Company. Uh, I'm not sure whether the balance is struck right there, but you you have to think about the legitimate interests of the employer. There may be good reasons why they don't want to employ people uh, who may be impaired not because of AIDS, but because of ingesting marijuana, which affects perceptions and right. sharpness and everything. It's, it's the ongoing battle about, about drug testing in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But here, in a, a very sympathetic context, uh, here is a man whose doctor said, this will take care of these awful symptoms that are making your life miserable. He takes it, takes care of his symptoms, he's qualified to work, he can't get a job. Yeah. They'll have to find a more tolerant employer, I guess, or an employer who's more willing to put up with an employee who's using a controlled substance. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in March. <laughs> <laughs>